Congratulations and so thankful for God's faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to work hard to get through. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Turn to the book of Ruth with me, if you would, please. We are going through the book of Ruth uh, together. Um, So for those of you who are guests, we take books of the Bible and we kind of work through them. Um, We just got finished with an 18-month study of the book of Luke, which is in the New Testament. And then we took just a few-week break to talk about what it means to kind of live out our mission, and that is to be and to make followers of Jesus. And so we all actually talked about what's one person that we might um, get to know and just extend the love of Christ with an earnest and a genuine way over this next year in hopes that they would find the freedom of Christ in their lives. And so maybe you are here and you need that freedom and we're praying for you and we're thankful to God that you are here. But today now we find ourselves in what is now the fourth installment of uh, sermons into the book of Ruth. And so we are in chapter three in the book of Ruth. I want to read verses one to five and then I'll um, pray after that. But we're going to look at the entire um, chapter of chapter three uh, as we continue to hone in on this uh, study of the book of Ruth uh, out of uh, tragedy to beauty and Uh, Today, the specific um, application as we have been applying this chapter to chapter from tragedy to beauty, today we'll be looking out out of tragic emptiness into beautiful commitment. Out of tragic emptiness into beautiful commitment. Let me read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3 and then I'll pray. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, her is Ruth, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we get to look at this beautiful story of the book of Ruth, we also remember why this story is here. It is so that we would see you as a beautiful Savior. And Father, as we get to see the beautiful commitment of Boaz to Ruth, I pray that it's only a small shadow that points us to the substance of your commitment of love to your people. And so in this moment that we have together, we ask that you would show off your sufficiency and grace and power and might. We pray that you would work in our lives and that you would transform us from the inside out. And so, Father, I pray that in these moments that we have together, you would do a work. Do this for the glory of your name. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Out of tragic emptiness into beautiful commitment. Commitment is a wonderful word, but it's a foreign word for our culture today. 
hard to think about what a genuine commitment is. A commitment of one where I'm in this for the long haul, I won't give up on you, I'm sticking with you. Even if you make a mistake, I'm not going to run away from you, I am committed to you. This word commitment is, a, is an expression of love. And as I was thinking about this word commitment, other than uh, Christ's commitment to me, there was a story that uh, came to mind, and it was of a seminary professor. A professor of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, his name is Robert McQuilkin, in 1990 resigned from being president over this institution. And he did so because his wife of that time of 42 years had full-blown Alzheimer's and needed to come home and be taken care of. And so when people looked at him, it was like you have so many years left in your life and you know, you sure you don't want to do this? I mean, you sure you want to do this? You want to move away from presidency over this great institution? You're making a massive impact, etc., etc. And when Robert McQuilkin was faced with this information, he said this. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? But he said, this was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. However, it was only fair because she had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. And now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 more years, I would never be out of her debt. So in love, he retired from that seminary and was committed to his wife until her death. Commitment. It's a moving word. It's a powerful word. It's a word of love. And although when we look at this passage, it is going to speak of one character in the story's commitment to another. That is Boaz's commitment to Ruth. It speaks three times infinitely louder of God's commitment to His people. And so we get the privilege as we look at the tragic emptiness of this story and these lives and how God begins to transform it and make something beautiful out of it. He begins to show us His beautiful commitment to His people, to His name. And He does. He uses an earthly man named Boaz to reflect that commitment. So, as we go through it, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about what that situation of tragic emptiness looked like and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, what it looked like to, to move away from that em- emptiness into commitment. But to do so, I think we've got to remind ourselves of the story. We're now in chapter 3, and most of you have not been chewing on this story as much as I have, and so we need to make sure we know the story. If this is out of tragic emptiness into beautiful commitment, the greatest tragedy, if we remember, is found in the very opening words of this story. It was in the days when the judges ruled. 
The setting of this story is not a throwaway. It was a time in which the people of God were called this. They were a people who did what was right in their own eyes and they rejected God as king. And all of the horrific stories and horrific instances in the book of Judges spoke to the greatest tragedy that leads into this story, the story of Ruth, and that is the people's rejection of a faithful God. They thought they were wise in their own eyes. They knew how to run their life better than God knew. And so they rejected him. And it led them on a trajectory of pain and suffering and destruction. That's what always happens when we reject God and we seek to do what is right in our own eyes. So the story of Ruth begins now with a man and his wife and his two sons. Elimelech, the husband of wife Naomi and two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they find themselves in a famine in a city called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. It was the main industry, therefore you could imagine, was what? It was gathering of wheat and the making of bread. And so it was in the house of bread, ironically, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we find ourselves in a famine. No food. Why is that? Well, we have indicators that this was the judgment of God upon the people of God for rejecting Him. But they were meant to stay put and to trust God to provide. Instead, Elimelech took his family and hightailed it out of there and they go to a land called Moab. Moab was the poster children for those who hated God. They did child sacrifice, they worshipped pagan and false gods, and they were the primary antagonists against the people of Israel. And this is where they went. And they land in the area of Moab, and then Elimelech marries off his two sons to Moabite women. Now let's be really clear. The Bible actually has places where it commends interracial marriage and is an advocate for it. Just look at Moses and Zipporah in Exodus and how that interracial marriage of a Jew and an Ethiopian is encouraged. However, this interracial marriage is discouraged not because of ethnicity, but because of faith. The people of Israel were following God. The people of Moab were not following God. It was not that they shouldn't marry because of their ethnicity. They shouldn't marry because of their allegiance to God. They had two totally different allegiances. And so, against God's command, against God's ways, they intermarried. And when we go against God's ways, it's always setting us on a path of pain and destruction what the Bible would later call unequally yoked when a follower of Jesus marries someone who is not a follower of Jesus. And it can and will create pain. So what we end up seeing is this. Elimelech ends up dying. Naomi's now lost her husband. Then Naomi loses her two sons, Malon and Chilion, and that leaves their two wives widowed. The two wives Orpah of one son, Ruth of another son. And at that point, Naomi doesn't know what to do because when you lose a husband, you are poor. That is just where you are. And so she's like, I've got to go back home. She heard that there was now food in Bethlehem. And so after 10 years of hanging out in Moab, 10 years with no children, I might add, 
major pain and stigma in those days. More suffering, more difficulty. They end up beginning a trek towards Bethlehem. And as they are on that trek towards Bethlehem, it gets really difficult. Ruth looks at these two daughter-in-laws and says, you just need to go back to your, to your family in Moab. You need to leave me. I'll be okay. And you just need to go back. Orpah goes back. Ruth says this. No, I'm going to stay close to you. We know from Ruth chapter 2 verse 11 that she literally left her mom and dad who were still alive to say these very words. Your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. And Ruth follows Naomi in faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Naomi all the way to Bethlehem. And now it's at the end of chapter 1 when you begin to see Naomi's condition of the heart. She is angry at God. And she is empty in heart. She literally says that word, I am empty in my heart. And she, where in the Bible God is supposed to be the one that names and changes names. She gives herself her own name and it's Mara, which is bitter. Because that was the condition. She was just angry and upset, feels like God was against her. Some of you understand those feelings and emotions. That's where we are at the end of chapter 1. Yet, there's a ray of light into the darkness. It is this woman named Ruth. Who when we jump into chapter 2 and she looks at her poor mother-in-law and they have no food. She says, I know what faithfulness looks like. I've got to go and get some food. So she goes and she goes to the field to the primary industry of the day in order to glean at the edges of the field. Because here's how it worked in the wheat industry. God had ordained it that they were to leave the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor could come through. Now, I think what we need a little bit is a little lesson on the wheat industry. Because if you're like me, I don't do that every day, right? Like, I've never done it, okay? So I don't think you have either, many of you. And so in order to understand, I think we've got to figure out a little bit about what's going on. Now, if the takeaway from this is... Now I know I need to go harvest wheat, then I've probably not spoken correctly. Okay? The goal is not that you become wheat harvesters. The goal is that you understand what's in the Bible. But here's the first picture. This is wheat. Right there. Okay? Some of you know that. It's like, duh. Hey, I needed a duh lesson. Okay? I had to study hard to get to this point. Okay? (laughs) Wheat. Those little bushy things at the end, that's where the grain is. Okay? That's what's going to make bread. This is not a gluten-free message, okay? So you've got the bread there, and they've got the grain. And so now what we have is from that, we have um, what they have to do is this image right here. This is a sieve or a cycle of some type. This is in the country of Nepal. And they come through and they sweep and they gather up this hay, these stalks, this grain itself. And as they do that then, they take it, next picture, and they stack it up into sheaves. These sheaves are bushels, they're they're bundles, and they make them in an A-frame shape so that the, the grain heads are at the top. Because what you want in shaping them like this is that they dry out, but that the, the good grain is not at the ground. 
So now they're stacked up like this, and all these little stacks you see on this picture, they're stacked up like this so that over time they will dry out. Now, the harvest season is around March and April, and it lasts about six to eight weeks. So they let it sit there and dry out for that amount of time, and then what you see is you see all that grass kind of in between those sheaths. Well, while that's, while that's happening, the poor will come in, and not only do they get the edge of the field to harvest themselves, but they are able to glean this picture. Gleaning is when these are some uh, poor women who are coming through, and if you notice the bushels of wheat are in the back, what you have is they are having to pick up small little grains that have been dropped. God had said that when you gather all this wheat and you stack them up, you've got a lot of wheat on the top of those stalks, but there's some that has fallen off on the ground. God ordained with a keen eye and care for the poor to say, don't pick those up. Leave it for the poor. The poor will come and they will pick those up. They will get some of the extra stalks that aren't in those bundles and they will take them and that's how they made a living. Now, Boaz has got this field where this is happening and you can imagine there are a certain group of women that have come to his area of the field but he notices there's another woman who's new to the scene. You can imagine the competition out there, right? I mean, they're picking up one by one. This is a competitive industry that the poor are trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Now Ruth shows up. You can imagine she would be pushed aside. You can imagine some of the men would want to take advantage of her. All kinds of stuff. But in faithfulness, she had courage. And she was a gleaner. And she went to pick up and to provide for Naomi. It was at that point where Boaz comes in and he says, I will protect you. I will make sure that people are not abusing you. And I will make sure that this is a field that you can come to day after day. God was providing for her. But now, what happens is, after these six to eight weeks and these stalks are drying out, they will take these dry stalks to the threshing floor. And it's at the threshing floor where they will beat the grain in order that the grain will come apart from the stalks themselves and they will begin to gather it. Now, you could imagine that this is not the best way to do it for a whole field, right? But this is a way to do it at a small level. Well, here's another video that's a way to do it at a larger level. So what they would do is they would create these platforms you would stand on, animals would go around, and that begins to crush out the grain. And as they crush out the grains, then also you will see these massive piles, and they will take what's called a winnowing fork, and they will take this fork and they will throw it up in the air, because here's what needs to happen. You need to separate these grains from also what's around the grain, it's called a husk. The husk is lighter than the grain itself. And by throwing it up, the husk is blown by the wind and that chaff or husk is blown away and the grain falls to the ground. They gather up all those stalks and they use that for feed and now you have grain and husks that are left. How are you going to separate the chaff, the husk, from the actual grain itself? You keep throwing it up, you keep sifting it, they would put it in a basket up high and drop it down and the grain would fall, the wind would blow, the chaff would blow over here and the grain would fall straight down. Here's an, a modern example of this where they have gathered it. Box fans were in the book of Ruth 
And so they took those. There's the chaff that's blowing away while the grain then is falling straight down. And they have to do that multiple times in order to get the husks away from the grain so that grain could be eaten. Yes, and the Home Depot boxes are a part of the story as well, or the buckets. So I had a child come up to me afterwards and say, that's not true, Pastor Sean. And you know what? You're exactly right. I'm just joking. So this is where we find ourselves now in Ruth chapter 3. It is at the threshing floor, that big open area where they would grind out the grain. Once it has dried for six to eight weeks, it's called the threshing floor. Now here's what's interesting. All throughout the scriptures, the image of the wheat harvest is used regularly. The chaff that's blown away is compared to those who are wicked, who are doing what is right in their own eyes, and they will be blown away from the blessing of God, and they will experience destruction. The chaff was regularly burned, or it was given as fodder for some animals, but it was consumed nonetheless. And it was used as an image by Jesus himself to say, if you aren't following me, you will be like the chaff that's blown away. The threshing floor, according to Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' words, the threshing floor was a place of judgment. It was a place where the chaff was separated from that which was good. And therefore, it's no accident at all that in this wheat industry, we find Ruth going to the threshing floor, this place of judgment that ends up turning into a place of redemption. A place should be characterized by judgment and blessing becomes a place of redemption for Ruth herself. Now look at Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now this word rest is crucial. Because the word rest is used earlier in the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For when it was found out that everybody had died, and all the men in the family had died, and the women were left alone, Naomi says, Ruth, go back to your hometown, because I want you to find rest. What does this mean? It meant in that culture, the only place of rest and security and provision was for this woman to be in the care of a husband. And so Naomi had it on the top of her mind, I want you to be cared for. I want you to find rest and security. And so the only place I know for that to happen is for you to go back home and to get a husband because I can't provide you a husband, she says. Well, Ruth says, no, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And Ruth basically rejects her family, rejects their gods, rejects what she thought at this point was going to be any sense of security through marriage and says, I am going to go this direction. It's a light in the midst of tragic emptiness. However, Naomi still has this idea on her mind. Why is this on Naomi's mind at this point? It's because Ruth in her faithfulness to go to a field and provide, just so happened to show up on a field 
that was one of Naomi's relatives and just so happened to show up at this field where Boaz, this man, is going to take care of her, where he provides for her and protects her, just so happens to be what's known as a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was one who, in that culture, there was a pecking order that when a husband died, you would actually then go to brother, uncle, cousins, etc. There was an order in which this happened, and they were to, according to God's law, not legal law, but according to God's law, this was the right thing to do. And that was to marry this widow and provide for her. And so, when Naomi, here's the report. You remember the story. Ruth is gone. Boaz now has taken care of her, given her everything that she needs. Ruth goes back and says, look at all the favor God has given me. And it was at a field named Bo- of a guy named Boaz. Naomi's like, ding! Boaz, family member, we can do a holy hookup. So, this was on her mind, and so chapter one, she's or chapter three, verse one. I should I not seek rest for you? Should I not seek this kind of security for you? Is not Boaz our relative? Yes, and amen. Okay, let's do this. So, she makes a plan. If you see in the end of verse two. He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. He's mapping out that grain. He's kind of doing the separation thing. He's winnowing it, the winnowing fork. And and so Naomi's plan is this, verse 3. Wash therefore, anoint yourself, and put your cloak on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down and observes the place where he, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this, I find it as a great irony of God, a great smile from God, that this um, extremely mature chapter in the book of Ruth is on the first Sunday when we have kids two and over in this room. So, as a parent of four kids, um, I am going to be respectful, and we will not do a PG-13 version, but we will do a G version of this story, okay? So, some of you might be frustrated at why this might not be as clear as it could be. I just want you to know I am loving our neighbors, okay? Now, we're jumping in at verse 6 here, and let's keep reading what happened. So, she went down to the threshing floor... And she did just as her mother-in-law Naomi had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. So threshing floor, winnowing fork, you've got grain over here, you've got the chaff over here. He lays down next to a heap of grain. Then she comes softly and uncovers his feet and lays down. And this is customary in that time. But now at midnight, the man is startled when he turns over and behold, there was a woman laying at his feet. So far, this is Naomi's plan. And he said, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, these, this language, spread your wings, is literally take your garment and put it over my feet. That was equivalent to a marriage proposal. It was, 
Ruth being straightforward and saying, I am here with a view towards commitment of marriage. She literally was proposing and asking for a ring. This was extremely countercultural. Be like a boss, it'd be like an employee talking to a boss and commanding a boss around. It was just completely out of cultural steps. And so she proposes to him. Now, where that might seem forward, you have to understand the context. Were she not to have done that, to speak of commitment and marriage, it would have been extremely normal to assume she was there for other reasons. A potential one night stand of sorts. And so before anything like that storyline could ever unfold, she says, I'm here with a view towards marriage. Would you put a ring on my finger, basically? Would you spread your wings over me and cover up my feet? That was just the customary way to do it in those days. Now, let's stop here for a second. If we are looking at this overall theme of out of emptiness into beautiful commitment, out of tragic emptiness to beautiful commitment, I think we begin to see that there's a path for us who are struggling, who might feel empty, who might feel in difficulty. There's a path out of emptiness that is shown to us in these verses. First of all, Ruth is found as one who is trusting in the Lord. She is found as one who is trusting in the Lord. We see in, Luke, in Ruth chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, that the reason she was faithful to go and glean, the reason she was respectful to Boaz, and even the reason now in Ruth chapter 3 that she initiates marriage is because of her faithfulness to God. She trusts in the Lord. Listen to Ruth chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. That speaks to this faithfulness. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law Naomi since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. Listen to how that, listen to these words. When Boaz is taking care of Ruth, he is stating to her that this is God taking care of her. Boaz is massively humble here. He is saying, my provision for you is God using me to express his provision of you. He is loving you. He is repaying you for your past faithfulness. He is caring for you. But look at what else Boaz says about the state of Ruth's heart. He says, And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, there's our word again, you have come to take refuge. When, he, when Ruth says, would you spread your wings over me? Move your garment over my legs. Would you propose to me? It, we are meant to hear that and go back to this verse 
when it speaks to the faithfulness of God to cover and care for and provide for his people. This was the motivation of Ruth. It was, I'm taking refuge under the wings of God. Look at how God is taking care of me through Boaz, you extending your wings of garment over me. You get the parallel? God is using Boaz, Boaz's provision, to express his provision for Ruth. The wings of Boaz's care are meant to be an echo of the greater commitment of God to his people. So what is the path out of emptiness? It is trusting in the Lord. Friends, some of you are going through significant difficulty, significant betrayal, significant pain, death, physical difficulty, relational difficulty, marital difficulty, difficulty with your kids, job stuff, financial stuff, whatever it is. The path out of the feeling of emptiness begins at trusting God to take care of you. It begins with taking him at his word and you have to go no further than the cross to know that he does what he says he's going to do. He gave his only son to redeem you, to buy you as his children, to pay the debt that you couldn't pay so that you might be set free and made a child of the king. And not only that, but because he sent his son And because he raised Jesus from the dead, every one of his promises for you are true. And that means you do not have to be afraid of the future. Because although you are, like we talked about last week, although you are fully responsible for your actions, you will never thwart God's plans. His plans are in control, working through our responsibility to determine the outcome that he knows is best, just like he did at the cross. Friends, you can trust in him, that he loves you and that he'll take care of you and every one of the promises that you read in these verses, they are God committing himself to you for the long haul. Trust in him when you feel empty. But when you trust in him, the next step is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. We talked about this last week. It is doing what you know is right to do. Doing what you know God has called you to do. And for Ruth, here's the deal. When she went to the edge of the field, that call of faithfulness was a risk. She could have been, it was a foreign area and she was already an estranged woman. Those men could have abused her and hurt her. Those women could have mocked her because she was infringing on their territory. All of it was a risk, but she was faithful and she had courage. You know what else was a risk? What we read right here in in Ruth chapter 3. It was a risk for her to go and to lay at Boaz's feet because it put her in a vulnerable position. A vulnerable position that many other stories in that culture at that time, that very scenario would have led to abuse and betrayal of a vulnerable person. And yet, she knew it was the right thing to do. And she had courage. The last step 
out of emptiness is not just faithfulness, but faithfulness with courage. Faithfulness with courage. That's my encouragement to you. Some of you know that there is some good you should be doing, but you are afraid. Some of you are afraid of full surrender because you don't know what that future will hold. Some of you are afraid. You're afraid to love when it's hard because you're afraid of being hurt again. Emotionally. Some of you are afraid. Being faithful to God, it takes courage to love. You know what that is. I don't know what that is for you. But I'm encouraging you. The path out of emptiness is to face your fear, to love largely, and to trust God, taking Him at His word. Now, it was out of this emptiness that it leads to beautiful commitment. And that's what we see in verse 10 of this chapter, chapter 3. And he said, may you, this is Boaz. So if you remember, we have a hanging marriage proposal happening right now. Okay? I am here with a view towards marriage. Boaz, what are you going to do with this? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. So now you see his gaze. He's a man who loves God and he sees her presence here and her commitment to marriage as a sign of her faithfulness in God. You have made this last kindness. Now, this word is crucial and we'll pick up on it a little later. This word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And I did, I, I did that. That's how you talk in Hebrew. I don't have anything in my throat. In Hebrew, it's chesed. It means God's steadfast, never giving up, unfailing love. And that love can be displayed by us to others. And he's saying that that Ruth's faithfulness to be here and to follow Naomi's advice and to propose was a kindness. It was expressing God's steadfast love to her, now expressing it to him. It was a kindness. And he's saying her being at his feet in that moment is a greater kindness than even the first kindness that she did, which was taking care of Naomi and risking everything by going and gleaning on a foreign field as a foreign woman. That's why he says this, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. She could have gone after other men for security. Instead, she did it the right way. A man who trusted in God, a man who was a kinsman redeemer, she followed God's ways. All of you who are single out there, the temptation to take things in your own path to do things in your own way and to not marry in the Lord is a massive temptation because you can get afraid. You can get afraid that you'll be single for the rest of your life. You can get afraid that you won't have some sense of security or you will never be loved by someone else. Friends, I hold out for you. God's way is always, always, always the best way. And when you choose to take things in your own hands under this guise of love, 
I promise you, if you are not, as a follower of Jesus, choosing another follower of Jesus to spend your life with, you are headed on a path that will be painful and could even be destructive. God lays out. God lays out for you. Not that you wait for the perfect person. It ain't going to happen. But that you wait for someone who loves Jesus and is willing to go after Jesus together. Marriage counseling, I say this all the time. If you two people are going towards Jesus, you will be coming towards one another. That's how it works. So if you start this off and one is going this way and one is going towards Jesus, parallelograms don't touch. Emotionally, spiritually, you are meant to be going towards Jesus so that the intimacy with one another grows and grows. And that applies to those who aren't married, but it also applies in marriage itself. You feel distant before you get frustrated. Walk towards Jesus. Pray and encourage. Go after Him. Because when two people are doing that, I promise you, you will be walking closer together. So Boaz says, You have been faithful, Ruth. And now, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He said yes. That's just a weird phrase. He said yes. He put the ring on the finger, basically. He says yes. He did. So, what we have now is a man who is going to commit himself to her, but at massive risk to himself. Now, how does Boaz's commitment of friendship and eventual hopeful marriage, how does that reflect God's commitment to us? Well, what we see is Boaz, first of all, has self-control. In order for, for commitment to take place horizontally, us to others, It begins with self-control. As I said, in that culture, it would have been understandable, wrong, but understandable for Boaz to not wait for marriage and to go towards a one-night stand. Instead, he did not give in to immediate gratification, but he had self-control. And I encourage you, friends, Part of walking in commitment to Jesus for your joy is self-control. Self-control at what you look at. Self-control at how you use your mouth and how you use your body. Self-control. We also see that it led to obedience at a cost. Boaz's commitment to Ruth was not only an expression of self-control, but it was an expression of obedience at a cost. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 12. Well, look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That phrase, worthy woman, is the Proverbs 31 phrase. It is, you are an excellent woman. You are a Proverbs 31 woman. Just as I said, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Proverbs precedes the book of Ruth because of this very verse. Ruth is an example of a faith-filled, excellent woman. She's worthy. She's faithful. And now verse 12, now it is true that I am a redeemer. 
That means I am able to marry you because I am in the family line, but there's a problem. I'm not first in the pecking order. He goes, brother, uncle, cousins, etc. There's somebody ahead of me, he says. You see that in verse 11? Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's somebody higher that we've got to give first dibs to. First of all, that's Boaz seeking to be faithful. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Well, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, in an expression of faithfulness to God, I will redeem you. And so lie down until morning. Now, why was this obedience at a cost for Boaz? Because Boaz was saying yes to marrying a non-Israelite woman, a foreign woman, a woman who was looked on in the town as one who was suspect. But I have a secret for you. It's actually not a secret, it's in the Bible. Do you know who Boaz's mama was? Boaz's mom was not an Israelite. She was actually a Canaanite from the land of Jericho. And her mom was, his mom was also a prostitute. But in those days, his mom was faithful to protect the Israelite spies in a pre-war campaign at the Battle of Jericho. And it was this woman, her name is Rahab, who was known for her faithfulness a non-Jewish woman who was the mom to Boaz himself. So Boaz had a sketchy past. Why would God do it this way? Bringing all this through a prostitute or those who have bad reputation and then now be working through to go through Ruth as well. It was because, and hear this loud and clear, God is passionate to do things in such a way that it is crystal clear that He did it and you did not. He is after His glory. And He did this in such a roundabout, unpredictable way so that it would be known that God specializes in redeeming crazy stories for His name and that's how He gets glory. So He has the lineage of what will be the Savior of the world coming through a prostitute and now a Moabite woman. God did that. And so at the risk, Boaz was the perfect man. Coming from a mixed marriage himself. He was the man for the job, so to speak. But also, he had to risk his time and his resources. And so let's keep reading verse 14. So Ruth lay at his feet until morning. But arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to mother-in-law, you can imagine Naomi's like, how'd it go? You know? How did you fare, my daughter? I love this kind of polished language, you know. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, 
These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Do you hear what he's doing? Not only is he willing to redeem Ruth. He is saying, I know that that means I'm also going to take care of Naomi. Naomi not only wanted security there, but what was going to be her security? Boaz was a man of upright commitment to God and therefore to others. And he was saying, I will take care of everyone. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest. There's our word again, rest. He will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, We'll have a sermon next week on Ruth chapter 4. But just to lay out a little bit of what happens, Boaz goes to this kinsman who's higher on the list. He says, I've got too much to do. I'm not going to marry her. And so Boaz ends up marrying her. And the one who was barren for 10 years, they end up having children. And those children, one of them, is the seed that goes all the way to Jesus. And so we will hear more about that Savior next week. But in part, I wanted to end with this. We are meant to finish this chapter not primarily standing in astonishment at Boaz's commitment, although it is massively commendable and instructive for all of us. We're meant to stand astonished at God's commitment. God's commitment to be faithful to those who are in tragic emptiness. God's commitment to be faithful, to bring a Savior to lost humanity. God's beautiful commitment out of tragic emptiness. And so I just want to highlight a few things that this, these chapters show us. In Boaz's provision, it is an echo of God's provision for His people. And I just want you to sit there and to know this story is meant to be read for you to know that God will provide for you with more love, more capacity, more endurance than even Boaz had for Ruth. He provides for you. The second would be in this idea of kindness. Kindness. Our Savior's kindness to us. If you know when Boaz says, I will be your Redeemer... It means that he will sacrifice time and resources in order to be committed to this woman forever, for the rest of his life. And whenever you hear redeem, it's always regularly connected to the loving kindness of God. Here's an example. Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. Speaking of God. God, you have led in your steadfast love. That's the word kindness or chesed. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have what? Redeemed. Steadfast love is always connected to redemption. And it says you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. When we see Boaz's faithfulness and kindness and Ruth's Kindness. It is just meant to be a small picture of God's never-ending kindness towards us. To redeem us. To make us His children. It's meant to be a picture of the cross. That He gave His only Son to pay the ransom that we could not pay. To make us children loved forever. 
his steadfast love. And then we have this final idea of rest and security. Rest and security. That our God spreads his wings over in kindness to be the ultimate rest and security. More than any marriage could be, more than any relationship could be, more than any job could be, God is our rest and security. And so as I was meditating on this, there's three takeaways. They all begin with the letter F. When you are in fatigue, you are tired, and you are exhausted, you are to look to the commitment of our Savior to provide for you in constant, never giving up loving kindness, and to be the one who will provide you the rest you need. Even at times when you cannot get physical rest, you can have a rest under the rest, a rest of the soul, a peace of the soul. And some of you need to stop, be still, and sit with Jesus and just ask Him to calm your heart. I'm, I wish there was some other way that could happen, but in many ways I don't. The only way that peace and anxiety can be relieved from your heart is for you to be still with Jesus and to allow Him to do a comforting surgery on your heart as you abide with Him and spend time with Him and listen to Him. When you're fatigued, hear Him say, I will spread my wings over you and I love you. I will be your rest. When you're fearful, when you are afraid, you should look at God's providential provision that is God's intervention into this world to assure you that every single promise that has ever been stated by Him will be given to you as sure. You can read any promise and know that it is yours by simple faith in Jesus when you are fearful. So you can stare at fear, you can walk in courage, and you can trust Him. The last one is frustrated. <laughs> we all get frustrated. That's always a calm word to camouflage anger. We can get frustrated, but I'm not angry. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. I want you to take a breath. I want you to take a breath in your frustration. Being heard is not your greatest need. Although we should listen to one another. Getting your way is not your greatest goal. Even though you might have some really wise ideas. Getting your point across and winning is not where satisfaction lies. You will be satisfied when your greatest aim is that God's character of kindness and His great fame and love towards you are shown off to the very person you're frustrated with. The greatest thing you can do for yourself and for others is to show kindness. For God tells us in Romans chapter 2, it's the kindness of God that leads to what? Repentance. Your greatest aim is their repentance. What is repentance? It is not, yes, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and you're always right. That's not repentance. That's turning to you, not to God. It is repentance is God... I was not walking in your ways, and I love you. That is what you want to be the greatest prize for your kindness.
that that person who is broken and hurting would turn and surrender everything to Jesus. It's the kindness of God that has changed our lives, and that's what he encourages us to. Extend that kindness to others because he's just shown us that out of tragic emptiness, he is beautifully committed to each and every one of you by faith. Let's pray. God, I love you and I thank you. I thank you that you are for us and not against us. I thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And I thank you that you are the great provider when we cannot provide for ourselves. And we have this beautiful story that out of tragic emptiness has come a declaration of your beautiful commitment to us. Father in heaven, I pray. I pray where someone in this room is afraid that God, you would comfort them and encourage them with your commitment to them and they would walk away from fear towards the thing that they are afraid of in courage that you will take care of them. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help us when we are struggling to not only know and receive the kindness and love that you have for us, but we would extend that love to others. Father, I ask that as we now take the Lord's Supper, you would work repentance in our heart for sure, but that God, there would be a unique sense of celebration that wells up in the heart because you are committed to us. There is a security in your love. There is a freedom in your love that you will never give up on us. And so, Father, thank you for taking that judgment floor where we should be like chaff thrown away and instead you crushed your son that we might actually be redeemed at that floor of judgment and we might walk with you forever and ever not because we have done something that merits it but because we trust in your perfect work on our behalf father i pray that not only do you bring repentance to our hearts, but you bring celebration to our souls that you love us. And so now as we take the Lord's Supper in the spirit of prayer, two tables in the front, one in the back, you can get the bread in the cup, and you can go back to your seat, and you can, or you can spend some time in prayer up front. Whatever needs to happen, you can go to someone that you need to ask for forgiveness for, or you can go to someone and just thank them for how you see God in them. Whatever this is, this is both vertical and horizontal, but we take this time to confess our sin, yes, but to thank God for his unwavering commitment to us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that you've heard this good news that although you are a sinner, you cannot deliver yourself from your sin or the, from the shame and guilt. I pray you hear this good news today that God sent his only son to pay the price that you could not pay and never will be able to so that if you confess him as your Lord, he will come in and live in your life. He will take up residence. He will deliver you from shame and guilt and he will give you hope and a purpose for the days to come. Today he calls you to confess your sin and call him your Lord. And watch him save you. Wherever you find yourself today, I pray that this time is a time of repentance and celebration at the goodness of God. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.